body. Welcome back to the Lights Out Podcast. Today, our episode is on Gary Leon Ridgeway, the Green River Killer, one of the most prolific serial killers in all of American history. But before we get into today's episode, I first wanted to say a big thank you to everyone out there who downloaded the show, watched the show on YouTube. You guys really put us on the map. And thanks for all of the love and support that you've shown Joel and I. We're super excited for this Lights Out journey, and we're glad you guys are too. Before we get into Gary Ridgway, I just wanted to give a word of caution. This is a very disturbing episode. Some of the things we're going to talk about, some people might find extremely disturbing. But let's begin. Gary Leon Ridgway was born on February 18th, 1949 in Salt Lake City, Utah. He was the middle child of Mary Steinman and Thomas Ridgway's three sons. His older brother was named Gregory and younger brother named Thomas. When he was 11, the family moved from Utah to Washington State, where he spent his early childhood by Seattle's Pacific Highway in an impoverished neighborhood near SeaTac Airport. Gary's home life was troubled to say the least. Relatives have described his mother Mary as bossy and overbearing. And with that being said, Gary witnessed more than one violent argument between his parents. Throughout Gary's childhood, he struggled with wetting the bed, which continued into his teenage years. He even wet the bed as late as 13 years old. And as a child, every time he wet the bed, his mother made him take a bath. And she would often clean his genitals, which would often arouse him sexually. And this earned him constant belittlement and embarrassment from his mother. And these episodes that he would have with wetting the bed would create conflicting feelings of anger and sexual attraction toward his mom. And at times, Gary even fantasized about killing her. One of the things I wanted to mention about his mother as well is that she was definitely an attractive woman, but the way that she dressed around her kids was definitely suggestive at best. She'd oftentimes be wearing a robe or her kids would see her in a bathing suit or revealing one at that. And so they grew up with this idea that their mother was some type of sexual object. And this is coming straight from Gary's mouth himself. His father, Thomas, however, worked as a bus driver and a part-time mortuary worker. Very odd combination of jobs. And Gary would grow up listening to stories about his father's co-workers who as a mortuary worker would engage in acts of necrophilia or having sex with dead bodies as well as complaining to him about all the prostitutes that he encountered while being a bus driver. Almost not the only place for Gary that caused problems. School was no easier for him either, especially since he was dyslexic. Not only that, Gary was tested with an IQ of 82, which signifies low intelligence according to the IQ scale, and he actually had to repeat school on two separate occasions. And despite all these academic limitations, classmates described Gary as easygoing, and he was well-liked among his peers. However, it didn't take long for Gary to start showing a darker and more violent side of himself. All of these feelings of anger and hate were starting to build up inside, and he knew he would need to find a way to release them. As a 16-year-old high school student, Gary lured a 6-year-old boy into the woods and stabbed him so deep that the wound went through his ribs into the boy's liver. Miraculously, though, the boy barely survived, and according to him, he remembers Gary walking away laughing, saying, 
I always wondered what it would be like to kill someone. Literally, he did this for fun. He wanted to just feel that rush. This could have easily been one of the first times that he felt that rush take over him or energy or whatever it is that pushes you to want to murder somebody. This was the first time that happened. What do you think led Gary up to that point, though? I mean, obviously, his family life was absolutely terrible. No, no child should ever go through that. But what else do you think could be, a, you know, the stem to that type of behavior, like to immediately at that young of an age laugh as he walked away that killing somebody is okay? I think that there's a lot of factors that could play here with Gary. And I think with any serial killer, it's always a question of, is it possible for somebody to be born evil and be born with this just inherent gene to want to murder somebody or feel this urge to want to murder someone? Or it's also possible that Gary may have a mental illness of some sort. He's dyslexic, which doesn't mean anything, but it's very possible that he had some undiagnosed mental condition as well that would maybe make him not able to control his anger. And just when rage settles in, you never know what can happen. Things can get really dangerous if you can't control the rage. And obviously his parents, I think he had a huge impact on him. I mean, who knows what other stories his father talked about with Gary. I mean, for all we know, if he's talking about necrophilia, it could be way worse than that as well. So maybe all of that combined together, or maybe he's just inherently evil. It's hard to say. In 1969, Gary eventually graduated from Taiyi High School, after which he immediately married his high school sweetheart. 19-year-old Claudia Craig. At only 20 years old, he then enlisted in the U.S. Navy and got sent to Vietnam, where he served on board a supply ship, which exposed him to lots of violence and death through combat. And to cope with the trauma, Gary started to have frequent sexual relations with prostitutes in the ports he visited. In fact, Gary contracted gonorrhea several times, which angered him greatly. But this did not sway him from having unprotected sex. What I think is interesting to note, too, is the fact that he did find love at such a young age. I mean, he married Claudia at age 19. So while all of this rage is welling up inside of him, there is a loving side to him. Clearly, if this woman is wanting to marry him, I think that's very interesting. It leads me to believe that Gary was just really good at hiding his personality or this other side to him. It's it's super scary because, I mean, when you miss mentioned he got married at such a young age and that Gary has already stabbed a guy or, you know, a little kid. The fact that this, he was able to maybe manipulate or get to this woman at such a young age is, is just pretty mind blowing. The ability to manipulate is definitely a trait of a serial killer and a trait that Gary utilizes extremely well throughout his life. So after serving in the Navy in Vietnam, came home and he was honorably discharged in 1972. Once he got back to the U.S., he discovered that his wife Claudia had been having an affair, which obviously would piss him off, and therefore their marriage ended in divorce and she actually took off on him. And during this part of his life, friends and family described Gary Ridgway as friendly but strange and that he would exhibit bizarre behavior often. Others described him as meticulous and dominant and noticed that he was careful to not talk about his personal life. Very good at hiding the truth of who you really are. That's Gary Ridgway. After returning home and leaving the Navy behind him, Gary began working as a truck painter and was employed by Kenworth Truck Company where he would work for the next 32 years. Then in 1973, Gary got remarried to a woman named Marsha Winslow, with whom he ended up having a child with named Matthew in 1975. Gary loved his job as a truck painter, and according to his coworkers, he was good at it. His job was meticulous, requiring a steady hand and an attention to detail, which Gary had all of those qualities. 
He was social, a friendly guy who knew everyone enough to say hello. He often wore jeans and a Western style or button down shirts. He carried a squirt bottle around and a comb to keep his hair and mustache in place. During this period of time, Gary became a religious fanatic as well. And as a result, began going door to door trying to convert people. He would also read the Bible out loud at home, but also while he was working at his job at the truck company. It's also been reported that Gary would often cry during church sermons or even when reading the Bible, and he would force his wife to adhere to the pastor's strict preachings. Despite his somewhat religious deliverance, though, his actions were the opposite of what the scriptures he read said. Gary and his wife started out as Baptists, but then later went to a Pentecostal church where they participated in missionary work and found great enjoyment in converting others to his religion. And despite portraying this image of being a godly man, he would not only frequent prostitutes, which he hated because in his eyes they were so sinful, but that would not stop him from seeking out their services. Not only that, he also flirted and solicited sex from young women that he worked with. And to make matters worse, Gary drank beer quite often, and some would even consider him an alcoholic, and he was well known for his filthy and appalling jokes that he told. Not only that, Gary was abusive towards his wife, Marsha, and on one occasion, he put her in a chokehold. And the way that the story goes, the couple was returning home from a party where they had been drinking. Marsha stepped out of their van and stumbled toward the door. Suddenly, she felt hands around her neck squeezing tighter and tighter. She screamed and fought, not realizing it was her husband. Gary finally let go, then darted to the other side of the van and tried to convince her someone else had done it. He liked to sneak up and scare her, and he liked to see if he could walk silently. And according to Marsha, he could. Now that's a definite red flag if I was Marsha. Being choked by him and the fact that he likes to sneak around, definitely a cause for concern. By 1978, the Ridgeways were living in Federal Way near Dash Point State Park, and their house was located at the end of a cul-de-sac surrounded by acres of dense, damp forest. After they moved in, their church going came to an end. Marsha later told detectives that Gary began coming home from work later and later without explanation, often returning to the house dirty and wet. Then on July 21, 1980, Marsha filed for divorce and included a restraining order, in which Gary countered with his own in August and both said that they feared the other would become violent. Their divorce was finalized in May 1981, and Marsha got custody of their son, Matthew. And then from the period of about 1981 to 1985, Gary dated a number of different girls, and we don't really know the names of these women, and they remain anonymous to today. But after dating these women for a few years in 1985, Gary Ridgway started dating Judith Mawson, who has said that she initially found him to be a responsible, gentle, and stable individual. And I think when you look at a picture of Gary, I think you kind of get the feeling that he's a stable individual somewhat. I mean, he looks somewhat normal. He's a Caucasian man. He has a mustache. I mean, there's not really anything about him that looks off-putting at first glance, but it's what's hiding within that's the scariest part about him. At the time that Judith had met Gary, she had just been fresh off a 19-year marriage when they had met at a singles event at a Seattle Country Western bar in February 1985. And the two instantly clicked, and they stayed up all night talking at a friend's house after they left the bar. And Judith has said that, I thought, he's good looking. He's nice. He likes country music. Seems like a good old guy. And three years later, she married Gary in a small ceremony in a neighbor's front yard. And the couple built a quiet life together, going camping on the weekends or visiting junkyards to hunt for knickknacks to sell at the garage sales they held at their home. If there was anything amiss, nobody saw it. 
And according to Jim Bailey, Gary's coworker and best friend, he said that they were a loving and affectionate couple and it was a match made in heaven. Judith would end up being married to Gary up until he was caught. And throughout their entire relationship, she had no idea he was a serial killer. Later on, all three of the women he had been married to would admit that he had an insatiable sexual appetite as he never stopped seeking out the services of prostitutes. His ex-wives, including some of his girlfriends, also admitted that Gary would demand sex in public or other outdoor areas because he liked the thrill of potentially being seen. And we would later learn that his sexual fantasies would take a turn for the worst when he admitted to having sex in areas he had previously killed his victims. So throughout the 1980s and 1990s, Gary Ridgway is believed to have murdered at least 71 teenage girls and women near Seattle and Tacoma, Washington. As of right now, 49 have been confirmed. And in court statements, he later reported that he had killed so many that he lost count. His murders are believed to have begun as early as the 1980s. However, his first confirmed victims by law enforcement occurred in 1982. A man rafting in the Green River near Seattle made a shocking discovery one day. At first, he noticed what looked like a human hand slowly waving with the current. Fearing the worst, he contacted the police and an investigation was launched and a body was retrieved from the bottom of the river. This first confirmed victim was 16-year-old Wendy Caulfield, who was living in a foster home at the time and likely a vulnerable runaway at the time of her death. Wendy was found naked with her jeans tightly wrapped around her neck. Approximately a month following Wendy's murder, on August 12, 1982, another female body was found and was identified to be that of 20-year-old female named Debbie Bonner, who was also found in the Green River. This victim was only found a half a mile from the location of where Wendy's body had previously been dumped. Three days later, after Debbie Bonner's body was located, three more victims were found on the Green River. And together, these five cases drew widespread public attention and worries of a serial killer. And then not more than three days later, on August 15, 1982, two more bodies were also linked to Gary Ridgway. These women were identified as Cynthia Hines and Marsha Chapman, who were both found under the water. And according to police, the killer seemed to have tried to completely dispose the bodies by weighing them down and also securing them in a place with extremely large rocks. And then a few days later after this, Another woman turned up dead named Opal Mills, who was found on the river bank of the Green River where she had been dumped in the tall grass, and she also had her jeans tied tightly around her neck. When the medical examiner looked at all the bodies, they determined that they had all died of strangulation, and due to the proximity of the murders, the location of the bodies, the gender and age of the victims, as well as the manner of death, law enforcement officers announced that there was a serial killer on the loose. And soon, the press began calling him the Green River Killer. The investigation that would ensue would end up lasting almost a decade, costing taxpayers an estimated $15 million and would yield no killer. On Saturday, April 30th, 1983, 18-year-old Marie Malver, also working, was picked up by a dark pickup as her boyfriend and pimp watched from a close distance. As Marie got into the pickup, she appeared to get into a fight with the driver. The pickup sped off, and Marie's boyfriend followed in his own car. Unfortunately, he was caught by a stoplight, and the pickup took a corner, and when the light changed, he went around the corner, and the truck was nowhere to be found. After looking around for the pickup a little bit, the boyfriend decided to report the incident to the police because he was concerned about his girlfriend. But three days after Marie was kidnapped, a search party, including her boyfriend and family, saw the pickup truck again when they were out looking for her, and they found the truck and followed it to the house and called the police. The police actually came to the residence and questioned the owner, and that owner was none other 
than Gary Ridgway, who was 34 at the time and denied knowing Marie and the police believed him. In fact, they even asked him point blank if he knew where she was or if she was in the house. Once he said, nope, I've never heard of her. That was the farthest the police went with it. It definitely makes me think when Gary was stopped by the police and was questioned about the incident and how he basically just acted like he knew nothing that was going on and just completely, you know, going down that road and the police believed him. It goes back to like how good he is at lying and manipulating and so convincing too. Absolutely. I mean, he appeared to be this normal guy. And just by talking to them, there'd be nothing to indicate that he was this horrible monster that he really was. So obviously Gary Ridgway is obsessed with prostitutes, not only for his own sexual benefit, but for his victims as well. Because many of his victims are believed to be either sex workers or runaways or just vulnerable women that he came across. And women that he picked up along the SeaTac Strip between Seattle and Tacoma near the airport. And when he would go and try to pick up one of his victims, In order to gain their trust, he would sometimes show the women a picture of his son in his wallet in hopes that it would make him appear safe. Just another way to manipulate and play these women into thinking that there's nothing to worry about. You'll be completely fine with me. So Gary actually mentioned in an interview that when he did pull out his wallet, he made sure that he covered his name on his driver's license. Clearly he did that because he was smart to the fact that people would be able to identify him if they saw his name and for some reason they got away from him. If he tried to rape them or do something to them and they lived that they could identify him and he could be caught by the police. So what's interesting to me is that he tested this low intelligence in school, but yet it seems like streetwise he's pretty smart and definitely good at avoiding detection. I mean, oftentimes he would use different vehicles and he would change things up and he really was good at eluding the police, that's for sure. So once the women would agree to have sex with him, he would oftentimes engage in sexual intercourse from behind for a few minutes and then all of a sudden out of nowhere, he would wrap his forearm around the front of their necks and use the other arm to pull back as tightly as he could, strangling them to death. Later, He adopted the use of ligatures after noticing that most of the victims inflicted not only bruises, but also wounds on his arm in an effort to defend themselves when he tried to rape them. We would find out later that Gary would kill most of his victims in his home, his truck, or a secluded area. And after initially dumping bodies in the Green River, he ended up dumping his victims' corpses in wooded areas around the Green River, Seattle-Tacoma International Airport, and other dump sites within South King County. And when bodies of his victims were recovered, They were often left in clusters, sometimes posed and usually naked. Gary obviously viewed his victims as human garbage and would even return to have sexual intercourse with their corpses. He later explained that he did not find necrophilia more sexually satisfying, but having sex with the deceased reduced his need to obtain a living victim and thus limited his likeliness of being caught. Three of his victims were unable to be identified due to the fact that when their bodies were found, It was only their skeletons which remained. Gary would occasionally contaminate the dump sites with gum, cigarettes, and written materials belonging to others. And he even transported a few victims' remains across state lines into Oregon to confuse the police. Because two confirmed victims of his and another two suspected ones were located in the Portland, Oregon area. Now with all of these murders happening and no suspects so far, the Kings County Sheriff's Office formed the Green River Task Force in the early 1980s in order to investigate who was doing these murders. And interestingly enough, Gary Ridgway was actually arrested in 1982 on charges related to prostitution. One year later though, 
he would become the prime suspect in the Green River killings. He was even given a polygraph test in 1984, in which he failed. And because he failed the polygraph test, he was served a search warrant and the police actually raided his home, where they collected samples of saliva, among other types of evidence. However, there was insufficient evidence to make an arrest, and therefore he was never charged and he would go on to kill many more women. Because obviously he's probably knows that this is a possibility, so he knows how to dispose of the evidence. And not only that, he is a master at living double lives, so he can make it appear that he's doing nothing wrong and he's just living a totally average normal life. Now, what's interesting about the police investigation is that two individuals that were on the task force, Robert Keppel and David Reichert, were actually periodically interviewing another serial killer, none other than Ted Bundy during this time. What's interesting is they actually consulted Ted Bundy for help in catching Gary Ridgway, since they likely had a lot in common, which they do. And Ted Bundy happily offered up his opinions on a number of things like psychology, motivations, and the behavior of a serial killer. Yeah, and speaking of Ted Bundy, uh, it, it was also mentioned before Ted Bundy's execution, he did feel like he needed to give back some good. And he was just kind of in that right place, right time uh, circumstances for himself. And he knew that he was really the only one who could relate to how severe everything that was going on at the time. I, I just found that fascinating, like right before execution. Like, what do you think about that? You think he was like wanting to give back one last time before they put, yeah. put down Ted Bundy? I mean, he may have had somewhat of a change of heart at the very end. And what other help can he really offer? I mean, can't really help in any way other than help the police catch another serial killer. Because obviously many things in common, I mean, just their behavior as well as their personality, because Ted Bundy, a very likable individual, he you would have never guessed was a serial killer and definitely lived that double life much like Gary did as well as the dark sexual fantasies both of them definitely shared that because Ted Bundy actually suggested that the serial killer likely knew his victims and was revisiting the dump sites to have sex with his victims which turned out to be true he also made the suggestion that killers dumping sites may be close to their home so the police actually created a triangle around the area and found Ridgway's home was located within this red zone. Ted Bundy also advised them that if the police found a fresh dump site, they should stake it out and wait for him to come back. So throughout the 80s and 90s, despite doing all these murders, Gary Ridgway was still out there meeting with prostitutes as well as using them for sexual services as well. So he was apprehended and arrested a number of times. In fact, in 1987, the police apprehended Gary Ridgway and took hair samples from him but they were unable to connect him to the serial murders. Because at this time during the 80s, the DNA profiling technology was just nowhere near where it is today. I mean, it was very primitive at this point, and it still is very hard to test these samples and connect them. As well as the database, the DNA database was still much, much smaller than it is today. The samples that they did collect, however, were subjected to DNA analysis and did help provide evidence later on. But by 1991, what was a formidable statewide task force had withered down to a single investigator, and the case had grown cold. Because Gary Ridgway, I mean, he's married, and he's got his whole other life that he's living, the normal side of him, and he was a model neighbor by all neighbors' accounts. According to everyone who knew him, nothing 
nothing seemed out of the ordinary other than the fact that Gary appeared to be a little over friendly because he liked to chat it up with everyone in the neighborhood. Now, two weeks before deputies would arrest him for suspicion of homicide, Gary logged one last entry in his decades-long diary of prostitution. On Friday, November 16, 2001, it was payday at the truck factory. Gary finished his shift at 3 p.m. and settled behind the wheel of his 1992 Ford Ranger. Armed with $30 and a pair of latex gloves, he headed for the strip he knew so well. Near a Motel 6 on Pacific Highway South, he spotted what looked like a working girl. He didn't know, however, that she was a working undercover for the King County Sheriff's Office. It was 3.55 p.m. and from his window, Gary waved his money at the woman. He pulled the truck into the motel parking lot and he got out and went to the bed of his pickup. And the woman walked over and Gary asked, are you dating? This would be Gary's last visit to the strip before his world came crashing down on him. He was also arrested for soliciting prostitution as a result of this encounter with the undercover cop. Also in 2001, David Reichert was appointed to the sheriff of Washington's King County. Although previous task forces had not been successful in capturing the serial killer, despite spending more than $15 million, Reichert created a new task force to search for the killer. Initially, the task force consisted of about six members who included detectives, profilers, and forensic experts whose primary task was to review all the physical evidence that they had. Initially, the task force consisted of about six members who included detectives, profilers, and forensic experts whose primary task was to review all the physical evidence that had been collected at all the crime scenes. And within a short period of time, the task force had grown to include more than 30 members, owing to the presence of huge amounts of evidence as well as witness statements. Because obviously, over the year, people are going to start witnessing people being abducted, cars riding around with women in them, potentially fighting, and who knows what else. But not only that, the amount of evidence that they're collecting from these bodies is immense. And by this time in 2001, there's been major development in the forensic field, such as DNA testing. And as a result, all the samples that have been collected from some of the earliest victims of the Green River Killer were sent in for DNA analysis. And in September 2001, the DNA results came back with a positive match. The semen and saliva taken confirmed that Gary Leon Ridgway was the Green River Killer. Then on November 30th, 2001, while Gary Ridgway was leaving work, police arrived to arrest him. He was arrested initially on suspicion of murdering four women nearly 20 years earlier, thanks to the DNA evidence that the police had collected. The four victims listed in the original indictment were Marsha Chapman, Opal Mills, Cynthia Hines, and Carol Ann Christensen. Three more victims, Wendy Caulfield, Deborah Bonner, and Deborah Estes, were added to the indictment after forensic scientists identified microscopic spray paint spheres as a specific brand and composition of paint used at the Kenworth truck factory during the specific time frame when these victims were killed. So initially after being arrested, it was originally tried on only seven murders because the prosecutors were only confident they could achieve convictions in those cases. And in an extremely controversial decision, the district attorney allowed Gary Ridgway to avoid the death penalty and plea bargain to life imprisonment if he agreed to confess to an additional 41 murders, as well as telling them who the remaining victims were as well as where their bodies were located. King County Prosecuting Attorney Norm Malang explained that the decision was for the benefit of the families of the other 41 victims. She said we could have gone forward with seven counts, but that is all we could have ever hoped to solve. At the end of that trial, whatever the outcome, there would have been lingering doubts about the rest of these crimes. This agreement was the avenue to the truth. 
And in the end, the search for the truth is still why we have a criminal justice system. Gary Ridgway does not deserve our mercy. He does not deserve to live. The mercy provided by today's resolution is directed not at Ridgway, but toward the families who have suffered so much. Mr. Ridgway, how do you plead to the charge of aggravated murder in the first degree as charged in count one for the death of Wendy Lee Caulfield? Guilty. How do you plead to the charge of aggravated murder in the first degree as charged in count two? Guilty. 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 Also a part of his plea bargain was another conviction for a 49th murder, this of an unidentified victim bringing his total to 49, which makes him the second most prolific serial killer in American history, according to Body Count. On December 18, 2003, King County Superior Court Judge Richard Jones sentenced Gary Ridgway to 48 life sentences with no possibility of parole and one life sentence to be served consecutively. He was also sentenced to an additional 10 years for tampering with evidence for each of the 48 victims, adding up to 480 years to his 48 life sentences, which I've never understood why they do this because it doesn't really matter if he's already got a life in prison sentence with no parole. Why add on the 480 years? It doesn't really make sense. I guess it's just a legal thing that they do. But to me, I don't know if he deserves to live at all, period. I mean, I get the we want to give the victims answers, but at the same time, is it worth keeping a monster like this locked up in prison his entire life? I, I do believe the death penalty route, though, would, wouldn't, in a sense, bring any kind of closure to the families of those victims. Plus, the the death penalty would just... I mean, that that's the quick way route, obviously, for Gary. And, um, you know, I think he knew that. But in, in a sense, it kind of makes me think since he did cooperate on that plea deal that um, he did have a little bit of remorse. It's possible there is some remorse there. But at the same time, I think that he just didn't want to die. I think he wanted to live and he was willing to, you know, give everything up in order to do that. And, you know, so it's, it's hard in these situations because you never know what's the better route monetarily for the families and for the actual person that is being sentenced to this. It's hard to say which one is a better route, but I don't know for serial killers. I just, I don't, you know, if you went back 50, hundred years, 200 years, somebody like this would be instantly executed. So it's one of those things. It's a really tough call, but Gary did deliver for prosecutors and he did lead them to three bodies in 2003. On August 16th of that year, the remains of a 16-year-old girl found near Enumclaw, Washington, 40 feet from State Route 410, were pronounced as belonging to Pammy Avent, who had been believed to be the victim of the Green River Killer. The remains of Marie Malver, who we talked about earlier, who was seen leaving with him in the truck that the boyfriend tried to follow, as well as April Boutram, were found in September 2003. On November 23, 2005, the Associated Press reported that a weekend hiker found the skull of one of Ridgway's victims. The skull of another victim, Tracy Winston, who was 19 when she disappeared from Northgate Mall on September 12, 1983, was found by a man hiking in a wooded area near Highway 18, southeast of Seattle on November 20th, 2005. Over a period of five months of police and prosecutor interviews, Gary Ridgway confessed to 48 murders, 42 of which were on the police's list of probable Green River killer victims. On February 9th, 2004, county prosecutors began to release the videotape records of Ridgway's confessions. I'll play some of his confession tapes now. You went through a lot of, uh, of work to create these ruses, and it sounds to me like you had a series of, of ruses that you had kind of in your hip pocket mm -hmm. that you would, you would bring out and you would use to 
to make you appear normal to some of these women. Mm -hmm. um, and there had to be a way of you deciding, even though it was just like that, uh, which ruse would work with which woman. I mean, you had to have a way of feeling them out and um, saying, I think ruse number one, two, three will work with this woman. How, how, tell me, explain that process to me. Well, one of them was, as I, they would, when we were getting in the car. She's already in the she's car? She's in the car. Let's say she's always in the car, driving down the road. And she, first, she wants to see my ID. So I whipped out my ID, and with my ID would be my, I put my finger over my driver's license to hide my name. But on the opposite side was um, pictures. And a picture of my son. And then she could see my son, and they would know I was a probably normal person. But you were really using your son as part of your ruse. It's only at the time I didn't want to picture my ex-wife there, so I had to picture my son. Sure, you had to you, you had to make it sound good. I had a driver's license on one side, my ID, and then when I showed my and then next next picture was with my son, so those and uh, in the vehicle I had. Some uh, always had some, not always, but had some of my son's stuff in there, you know. Um, they left in there, some Star Wars or something like that, you know, so it was, it was sort of like a family setting. In your, every, in your vehicle? Yeah, so every time I opened up my wallet, there would be a picture of my son on one side, uh, you know, behind my ID, here's my ID, I hide my name, flip it over, and there's my ID, and uh, I sent a picture on the back side, and they'd see that, and that would lower any big defenses. Mm -hmm. And you know, kids' toys, eight-year-old toys on the, on the dash. The only thing that would be better than that would be to have your son in the car with you. That that would be a, a, a incredible risk. Uh, that happened once. What happened? Uh, I, it was uh, July 18th, I think it was my brother's birthday. That weekend I picked up uh, a woman on back, back highway and Matthew was next to me in the seat and she hopped in and, and I took her over to uh, in the south, south airport area and um, took her uh, into an area and uh, my son was there and I, I killed her. I'm real sure my son didn't see it, but that only happened one time. But that was a pretty good, pretty good ruse. Mm -hmm. So why didn't you do it again? Well, well for one thing, the um, I didn't want my son to see it, see that happen again, because I was, it was, uh, that's when I was really um, killing a lot of them. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, another thing it never came to an opportunity again to do it and didn't I mean uh, I had him in my truck one time he was sleeping and I picked up another prostitute that didn't date her in one taped interview, he initially told investigators that he was responsible for the deaths of 65 women. In another taped interview on December 31st, 2003, Ridgway claimed to have murdered 71 victims and confessed to having had sex with them before killing them, a detail which he did not reveal until after his sentencing. Gary Ridgway told police he thought he was doing them a favor by killing prostitutes, saying, you guys can't control them, but I can. And he said he targeted prostitutes because I thought I could kill as many as I wanted without getting caught. His M.O. was to target a prostitute working on the highway, watch her from a distance before driving up and trying to pick her up. And obviously, like we said, he gave them the sense of security by showing his ID and the picture of his son. He'd then take them somewhere secluded to have sex. And then finally, he'd strangle them from behind, either in his van or in his house. And in his plea bargain papers, he also said, choking is what I did, and I was pretty good at it. And he also admitted that he placed the bodies in clusters, usually near a landmark that helped him remember their locations. He said, I did this because I wanted to keep track of all the women I killed. I like to drive by the clusters around the county and think about the women I placed there. And in his confession, he acknowledged that he targeted prostitutes because they were easy to pick up and that he hated most of them. Plus, he didn't want to pay for sex. He confessed that he had sex with his victims' bodies after he murdered them, but he claimed that later on, instead of just dumping the bodies, he would bury them so that he could resist the urge to commit necrophilia. He also said that murdering young women was his career. So Gary obviously went to prison. He was placed in solitary confinement at Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla in January 2004. On May 14, 2015, Gary was transferred to the USP Florence, which is a high-security federal prison east of Canyon City, Colorado. But due to public outcry and discussions with Governor Jay Inslee, Corrections Secretary Bernie Warner announced that Gary Ridgway would be transferred back to Washington because he needed to be easily accessible for open murder investigations. So Gary Ridgway was returned by chartered plane to Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla from the high security prison in Florence, Colorado on October 24th, 2015, which is where he remains today, serving the remainder of his life sentence. Now, what's interesting is what happened to Gary's wife, Judith Mawson. What's crazy is that Judith did not even believe the truth about her husband until he actually confessed to the murders. In fact, she recalls when police showed up at her door one chilly November day and told her that her husband of 13 years was not at all who she thought he was. He was, they told her, the notorious Green River killer suspected of murdering more than 70 women in the Seattle area over a period of 20 years. Judith says she was just crying and saying, no, it can't be him. But after Gary confessed, everything changed for her. Not only that, but Judith had found out that Gary had the carpets removed in their home because he had killed women on them and there were bloodstains. Yeah, it is also believed, though, too, after, you know, killing those victims on his carpet in the home, he would then roll the victim up in the carpet and put it in the back of his truck, just awaited to uh, dispose of the bodies. Not only that, Gary actually got rid of their bed because he'd had sex with some of his victims there and then killed them. But that wasn't all. Judith describes their sex life as very active, and she discovered that on many of those supposedly work-related late nights and early mornings, he was actually out hunting prostitutes. 
So throughout his entire life and all the relationships and marriages Carrie was in, he was always unfaithful and always seeking out the services of prostitutes wherever he went. When Judith thinks back, she thinks, was my life real with him or did he just use me? She now lives a quiet life in Graham, Washington in a mobile home that her late parents left her. And she still, to this day, has trouble understanding how the man who never showed a hint of violence to her was one of the most prolific serial killers in U.S. history. She's quoted as saying, I had the perfect husband, perfect life, and he was the perfect killer. That's one of the most chilling things and probably one of the most shocking things. I can't even imagine being married to a serial killer and then finding out that he did all of these things when the only thing you know about him is him as this loving husband that you had all these good memories with. And little did you know behind your back, not only was he cheating on you, but he was also murdering all of these women. Absolutely terrifying, I'm sure, to think about. There's also an interesting story about Ridgeway as a divorced father. He would take his son camping. And one of those times he went on an excursion with him and in 1982 he picked up a woman with his son in the car and then murdered her in the nearby woods while his son sat in the car waiting he told his son the woman decided to walk home and not only that he ended up having sex with this victim's corpse as his son slept 30 feet away in his truck this to me is a complete monster somebody that has no control over themselves i mean i think it's very clear that sex was a driving factor for him and and the ability to dominate his victims rape them, and then obviously he enjoyed killing them as well, strangling them. What's super ironic about this story, though, is that Matthew, Gary's son, remembers his father as a relaxed man who never yelled and who took him camping, taught him to play baseball, and always showed up for school concerts and soccer practices. So to his son, his dad was just a normal guy and a a good dad at that. And little did he know, his dad was an absolute psychopath and a pathological liar, clearly. So clearly, Gary Ridgway is an evil, evil individual and potentially has major mental illness and trauma from his childhood, which is absolutely no excuse for murdering all of these people. There's so many factors here that could have played into who he became and the destruction that he did. Starting back from his childhood, obviously had a huge impact on him and just his personality in general. I mean, he's this likable guy. He had all of the ingredients of a serial killer, I guess you could say. And he was smart about how he went about doing it. The fact that he picked individuals that maybe the public or the police wouldn't necessarily know about or know who they were sort of on the fringes of society really helped him evade capture for sure. But at the end of the day, I think it's important to remember with these serial killers that a large number of innocent humans died. And for all we know, I mean, the numbers go up to 70 plus and there might even be more that he's tied to. And with all that being said, I just want to pay tribute to all the victims here and all the victims' families who were affected by Gary Ridgway. And we should definitely remember all of these victims. Yeah. Law enforcement also did believe that Gary did have maybe over 40 victims that were unidentified for many reasons. Um, One of the main reasons was there there was not enough evidence to link to them. Uh, So they definitely did believe that there were plenty of victims out there that they, they could not find or, you know, things of like that. Which makes sense because they brought him back to Washington for that very reason and why he remains there today is so that they can access him if they need help with trying to figure out if there's a victim that might be tied to him. I mean, I don't know how open he is to talking these days, but it seems like the police are still actively investigating these other identified victims and trying to figure out if there is a link 
to the Green River Killer or if it's not. So I'm sure he's still being looked at by police for a number of different murders today. Because like we said, the numbers could be far higher than just 49 or 71. At least that's what he said. So there could even be more than that. Do you have any idea what the total number is? The total number is is 75 to 80. All of all my victims, except for one or two, were killed within two hour, two miles of I five. Do you know that? And everything. This is all about the victims. It's not about me. But we'll go ahead and end this episode of Lights Out here. Hopefully you guys enjoyed this episode of Lights Out podcast. If you did, be sure to follow us on Spotify as well as subscribe on iTunes. It really does help us out. And if you leave us a rating or review, that's awesome too. Also, be sure to check out the show on YouTube because we do add visual elements to the video version of the podcast so you can see more of what we're talking about in visual form. But thanks again for joining us. We will see you guys next time. Lights out everybody.